Yeah, there's a lot more to say about a, a little Black Sabbath lyric. There's more to say about it. What can I say? Except more. But in that idea of when you destroy an empty space, that it's some kind of crime, my one and only crime. And you know what I mean by that, and you know, I kept referring to that empty space as some kind of natural balance, some kind of essence or you know, pure state. But I have a better way of referring to it. I have a better way of defining that empty space, and it's something that's perfect. You, you could say it's perfection itself, but I would just say that an empty space is perfect. It represents total possibility. It could be a blank slate, you know, to use that. that uh, what else do you got? You know, what other good comparisons are for emptiness than a blank slate? The best part about it is we don't have any. There are no analogies for emptiness because nothing else is truly empty except emptiness. How's that for getting deep? The reason we don't have any other easy analogies is because we have truly no comparison. Nothing compares to emptiness. What's something else that we say has no comparison? Perfection. When somebody or something is considered the best at what they do, we say, oh, there's no comparison. There's no comparison. Mike Jordan's the best who ever played the sport. There's no, there's no comparison. And you know that means that person is the best that will ever do it. Or pretty damn good at the very least. And it's the same thing for emptiness. Emptiness truly has nothing else that we can compare it to. You can't even compare it to wind. There are, you know, even other unseen things. There are things that are unseen. And even those you can't compare to emptiness because there is there's still some substance. There is still some presence. Even an idea. Even ideas can't be compared to emptiness itself. But, um... You know, there is a perfection when something's empty. It's a blank slate. It represents total possibility. Because the second you add something to something, you change the range of possibilities and you limit them. You might still be able to do tons of different things with it, but you don't have total possibility. Certainly not the total possibility that comes from emptiness. And there is a perfection to that. Because in the same way that you haven't added anything you also can't take anything away from it. You can't take anything away from emptiness. You can't take anything away from a blank slate. Whereas, let's just go with the blank slate comparison, because we don't got much, folks. We don't got much to work with. Uh, in the analogy, our, our, you know, our analogy team couldn't find much. So we're going with blank slate, the same thing everybody says. But, you know, the second you add a line or even a dot, you know, at my artwork, I use a lot of stippling, I believe it's called, and uh, it involves a lot of dots and you know dashes, you know, creating textures and you know tonal ranges to get technical about it and uh, gradients. I know what I'm doing, um, but uh, the second you add one dot, you limit the range of possibilities. You no longer have total possibility if you even put one dot on a piece of paper. A line? Oh my God! Put a line on a piece of paper. Your range of possibilities gets even smaller. You really don't have total possibility. So, you know, putting whiteout on it, well, you know, you can usually see the whiteout. You can't cover it up once you've done something. But when it's in that original blank slate, there's nothing wrong with it. Nothing's been done to it. Nothing has been drawn on it. You wouldn't look at a blank slate unless you're one of these, like, pretentious uh, modern artists Nobody's going to look at a blank slate and say, oh, that's an amazing drawing. Even though it is. Even though a big, vast, empty field of nothingness is, is a beautiful drawing, sure. We can all think like modern artists, but, you know, you wouldn't look at that and say anything's wrong with wrong. Anything is wrong with it either. Um, you wouldn't say it's your favorite piece of art. You know, you wouldn't necessarily say that unless you... You're trying to impress people and seem enlightened. Oh, my favorite piece of art is the great emptiness. You know, I feel like I might as well be saying that most episodes these days, right? Uh, but, uh, you know, that blank slate, there's nothing wrong with it. And if there's nothing wrong with it, that sounds like perfection to me. So I think we can see where an empty space is perfect. And to do anything to that empty space, even if it is skilled and even if it means well... It's still destroying the empty space. It's destroying something perfect. 
and any artist will tell you, they never reach a point in a piece of art where they think it's truly perfect. I mean, I see all of the imperfections in anything I do, and I it's often hard to look past them, and not in a self-hating artist way, not in some, like, cut-my-ear-off, you know, romantic artist way, you know, self, you know, self-tortured, I was going to say, that's pretty much what it, what it is, the self-tortured artist, but not in that kind of way, just on a technical level, it's some kind, it sometimes can be hard to look at my own artwork, because I just, I see what's, I see where I, I see where, like, I had the initial inspiration, and I see the exact part of the drawing where I know my motivation or inspiration dropped off, and even if it isn't noticeable to anybody else, I can see that the lines aren't quite what these other lines were, or where I just didn't give it the same focus, or maybe I, I fell out of the flow state. You know, you can see that in your own artwork, and so that's one of the reasons why looking at your own artwork can be hard, because, uh, you know, not that it's, like, uh, emotionally difficult, but just that you don't want to look at it necessarily, because you see what's wrong with it. Same reason why it's hard to deal with yourself, because you see what's wrong with yourself. But in that, you know, no matter how well a drawing is going, like, I, I can think of drawings that I've truly been proud of, not just because of the result or anything, but just because I felt like it went so well. Like, I didn't end up hating anything. Like, I didn't end up messing something up and trying to cover it up. I think about drawings like that. But even then, I would never say they're perfect. And it's not modesty. It's I really can't. Even then, I can see where there's room for improvement. And so that's kind of where you're getting at once you start the process of putting that dot on or putting that line. And to get away from this art analogy, we found an analogy here, guys. Um... Great job, and now my analogy team, they're getting a bonus. Um, uh, but, uh, you, know, when you, you know, when you initiate a process that was perfect, you know, de- like when you take something that was perfect and you try adding something to it, even if you have this plan in mind, even if you're well-meaning and what you're going to do is going to be good or meaningful in some way, the second you add something to it, not only do you take away that, the, the total possibility, but that thing can no longer end up perfect. You know, it's, it's no longer going to end up perfect. And the reason is, is because you can keep working on it forever. You can keep working on it forever, and you're still going to be able to find something wrong with it or see room for improvement. And in your own life, it works the same way where, you know, you know, from birth, it's like things are, it's not that we even are adding things ourselves. We're not even drawing the lines or making the dots of our lives ourselves. I mean, they're handed to us. They're installed, you know, we're in, that shit is installed in us, you know, from the time we're a baby. So it's not even our fault. Like we're dealing with something, basically by the time we're conscious enough to deal with ourselves, you know, half the drawing has already been done and we've just got to work with what's there. And some of us are luckier than others. So basically, that's what's up, like, you know, with uh, the whole being alive thing, where it's like, you don't even have a chance to be perfect, because you've already been put in this world as a thing with things in your life, and things are being handed to you. So at no point do you start out with the option. And if you want to get really deep, like maybe before you're born, your soul has the option to enter a life. Who knows? But as far as I know, you're born into this world, and you're more or less empty. You Nothing has been added to you yet. You have just your body, which is something. So it's like you, from the very start, you can't be perfect because you have a body and there's imperfection to that. There's imperfection to the circumstances you're born into and then you're given things and you have things to work with and learn about. And so the whole process is going to be imperfect from the start once the process has been initiated. But that doesn't mean you didn't come from perfection. Before you were born, you probably were perfect. Whatever you were, it, it's beyond our comprehension And I would say it's, you know, I I like the idea that we all come from emptiness. Not that there is some, not that there is nothing out there. I mean, I have no idea. But it's like, I like the idea that we ourselves come from that empty space. And just the simple act of creation, the simple act of being born, that itself is the destruction of an empty space because now you exist. You are the dot or the, the line on the piece of paper that changes the the canvas from, 
you know, blank perfection, from empty perfection, total possibility, you know, you are now the dot that's on that piece of paper. And then dots and slashes are being done, you know, as you grow up, you know, you're being handed things, things are being drawn out for you, mapped out for you. So while you came from perfection, we don't really have a choice while we are in these bodies living these lives because there is stuff in our space. But we do have experiences. We do tap into this. You know, you can go into a house. If you've ever previewed a house or an apartment when you're moving, you preview a new place, and you go into a place where there's no furniture, everything's been cleaned, it's an amazing feeling. When you walk into just a totally fresh living place, and you might live there, and you go room to room, and sure, there's limitations to it, you know, there's only so many rooms, you know, it's a building, you know, you're confined to this building, but you don't really see that. You don't really see the walls. You look at every room, and what you see is total possibility. You think about what furniture you can put in here, you think about what you can do with it. And so you can see where if you think of emptiness as one of those rooms, one of those empty rooms, the second you put something in there, you take away that total possibility. That room has now become something. If you put the uh, baby carriage in there, it's now become the nursery. And you're going to start putting other things in that room that you think belong in a nursery. It's the same thing for your office. The second that you think, oh, I'm going to put a desk in there. I'm going to put a desk in there. It's now my office. I've got to put my office things in there, a bedroom. You do it with every room. But to begin with, you know, there's total possibility. And beyond the bathroom, you know, most of it is pretty negotiable. You know, there's nobody, it's like, oh, this is the master bedroom maybe. But, you know, a lot of rooms, you can do, you know, a lot of rooms themselves, you know, you can do whatever you want with them. But you make a decision at some point. You put a line or a dot in there. You define it somehow. You start a process. And the result is that's no longer an empty room. And now you have to clean it. You're living there. Now you have to clean it. You have to arrange stuff. You have to try to make it harmonious. Get that feng shui. Oh, I love the feng shui in this house. I could just live here. I could just live here. You know what? When I come to your house, what I like is it's kind of like a blank slate. And I love the feng shui. I just feel like when I walk into this room, this empty room you got in your house, I just see total possibility. You know what? This is the total possibility room. I'm going to stay in this room every time I'm here. Act like a baby. Uh, but, you know, it, it's that sort of idea where the second you add something to a room, you're now committing in some way. You're committing. You're committing to some sort of process. And, you know, you could even put something that's, you know, open for interpretation. You put a lamp in that room. So you don't know what kind of room that's going to be yet. You put a lamp in. It could be your bedroom. It could be your office. Uh, but the second you put that object in there, at the very least, you have to not put other objects that you bring in on top of that. That one object alone, even though it can be used for a variety of purposes, it's a source of light, it still changes what you can do with that room. It still narrows the range of possibilities. So, you know, you've got at the very least maybe bring in a table now. That lamp needs a table. You know, it's not a standing lamp. You know, we've already identified that. We've already identified that you can't just put a table lamp on the floor. This was my total possibility room. This was my total possibility room where when I stayed here... I could come in here and there was nothing. And you know what? Now you got a fucking lamp. You got a lamp on the ground. I'm never coming here again. Um, but, you know, you see where when you put a lamp on the ground, suddenly you need a table for it. Or, you, or if there's a standing lamp. You know, you got to start bringing in other things and those things now have a relationship. You got to put them in a place that makes sense. You got to make sense. You have to start making sense of this room. Whereas before, it was just something that you looked at, and there was something kind of comforting. You didn't feel like you lived there. It was an empty room in an empty house, but there was something kind of comforting about it. It felt really clean. It felt really pure. The purity of a freshly cleaned, empty house that nobody's living in, that's a, a good feeling. There's something that feels really good. It makes you want to move in anywhere. You know, It makes you want to move in anywhere that's empty and clean. There's a perfection to that. So, you know, I could just, I, I keep talking about these rooms in, in the houses forever, but we'll change the, the topic. 
not change the topic, but just shift back out of this this house example. Because even the house is something. Even the house doesn't represent, you know, total purity, the total purity of emptiness. To even call it pure seems audacious. Even adding, think about that, even adding the word purity to emptiness seems like it is adding too much to it. Like it's defining it a little too much. Because the second you put anything in it, on it, around it, the second you add anything to the emptiness, you've destroyed it. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's just how it works. I mean, Black Sabbath got that right. They understood that. And there is something oddly criminal about it, and I feel like that was well covered in the previous episode. Um, but I think that's where that sense comes from, the sense of feeling like I'm committing a crime or somehow disrupting or destroying something. It all comes from the fact that that empty space is a form of natural perfection. It is some form of just... It's untainted. It's unmarked. It is there. We all have a sense of it. We all have a sense for what emptiness is, and of course we have different visuals, but the fact that we need to visualize it at all tells you something about our perspective on it. You know, we have a tendency to think, oh, when I close my eyes and I see black, that's emptiness. Or you think of it as a white room. You know, it's often depicted that way in TV shows and movies. It'll have a character and they just appear in this white room. You can't see the seams. You can't see where the wall meets the floor. You're in a white room. It's emptiness, but it's not because it's a white room and there's people there. Can't truly be empty. If there's people standing around in some annoying dream sequence on a TV show. Oh, we'll do the white room scene. A scene where it's, you know, is it heaven? Is it a dream? We'll let the viewers wonder. And we'll have characters there who make weird, vague statements. It's a white room scene. Um, but, uh... That necessitated a song, necessitated a jingle, it necessitated the destruction of that empty space. <laughs> uh, but we have a tendency to visualize emptiness. You know, we visualize it a certain way. Even our idea, the, the purest possible visual, it's often solid black or solid white. You know, again, it's as good as we're going to get because we don't have a, a, a solid comparison. We don't have anything to compare it to. But I think that people get caught up in trying to visualize emptiness because it's already right here. It's already here, and I think you can only sense it. Because it's emptiness, I don't think it's something you can actually visualize. I don't think you can render it with your eyes. I think that it's something that you just get a sense for. You get a sense for what emptiness is and not that depressive hole-in-your-heart emptiness that you mean when you when you call your friends late at night and you say, I'm feeling empty. This is one of my empty calls. It's not that feeling. It's not that sensation. Uh, but uh, another thing I was thinking about, it kind of gets into the idea of, you know, when you take something out of its empty state, you do remove its range of possibility. You do li- You do begin limiting it. Even if it still has a, a ton of other possibilities, you begin limiting it. You know, in some way, you know, you've started a process that you can't really stop. Or can you? Because, I mean, you will eventually die. And I think that's the return to emptiness. That's the return to perfection. That's the liberation that comes upon death. Regardless of what your idea of it is, I think that could be... I think I think that idea can contain heaven. It can contain... Re, you know, not not rebirth, maybe, but um, it can contain, you know, liberation. Because rebirth is an interesting one. You think about rebirth, and to a lot of people, that would seem like it's the right ending. Like, oh, I get to do it again. The whole point is to keep going forever, keep forever, another lap. I get another lap out of this. I want to keep doing this forever. Because we live our lives that way. Like, you don't go to bed at night and think. Oh, I hope my soul is liberated in the middle of the night. You know, you don't you don't do that. I, I recognize I'm getting really obnoxious in this episode with these little singy things. I, I promise not to make that a. I promise not to do it again. Um, not only am I going to not make it a thing, I'm also just not going to do it again. I'm, I'm making that decision now. Um, but uh, total possibility. I'm limiting the possibilities right here. Um, but. You know, think about it, like when you go to bed at night, you don't think, you know, I sure hope that I'm liberated this this time. 
I sure hope I don't wake up. You never think that. You know, yeah, even there's people who are very depressed who are trying to kill themselves who do want to die. But I mean, the average person doesn't think in a healthy way. I hope I go to sleep and I don't wake up. There's some people that are at peace with the fact that that might happen at any time. Like, I kind of feel that way. I don't, I don't want to get too confident because you never know how you're going to feel tomorrow. But right now, I kind of have this feeling where I'm like, if I were to go to bed and die, I don't feel like I would have left anything hanging. My life wouldn't have been perfect because that's unobtainable the second that I was born into this body. But I know that I will be returning to perfection, and I feel at peace with that. I feel like I can accept that kind of perfection. You know, I, I feel like I can accept that entry back into emptiness. Uh, that's how I feel. I, you know, I do have concerns. Like I'm like, you know, if I were to die in my sleep, you know, I would need somebody to take care of Batty. You know, like the second I took him into my house, I was like, I now have this responsibility, you know, where even if I'm at peace with my life, I do have this other responsibility that I have to, you know, account for. Um, but, you know, if you die in your sleep, that's, you know, how, how everybody says they would prefer to go. And we have this tendency to think that it has to be at a certain point. You know, it's it, unless you're over the age of 90, it's a tragedy, you know, and, and death is a tragedy, and, you know, it should be, if anything should be given our utmost reverence, it is death. Um, but, you know, not a lot of people think, even people who are, you know, even people who are into, like, reincarnation and all these ideas, even those people don't think, oh, I hope that I don't wake up tomorrow, and that my soul is liberated in the night. Nobody thinks that way. You know, we think that way upon death. You know, but we all want to wake up tomorrow, and I think a lot of people operate that way in their lives with regard to life and death. I think that a lot of people come from that perspective of they think they think that the reward is getting to do this again, even if it's in heaven or even if it's somewhere else. Some people, I think, think of that way. They don't like the idea of not returning to earth. They are very attached to earth. Even people who are, you know, not happy, they there's a lot of people who are very attached to their earthly existence, and you know, they want to wake up tomorrow, no matter what. You know, they want to survive. But when they die, they also want to know that all that work they put into being them, you know, they have a name and interests, and they knew people, and they want to be remembered. But they also want to continue to be the person in this body that they were during this lifetime. So I think that some people are attracted to that idea of the afterlife for that reason, so that they can go on and be the same person somewhere, but keep on living to be reborn in some capacity, whether it's being reborn on the planet itself as another person or another creature, or simply being reborn in heaven, being reborn in this other place. But you see where, you know, in uh, Buddhism, where, and, and various other beliefs as well that parallel Buddhism, you see where, you know, being reborn, let's, I don't want to call it a punishment, but it's certainly not winning the game. And maybe if you're even thinking about winning the game, you're guaranteeing a rebirth. But still, there's this idea that, you know, it's sort of, oh, I've still got more work to do if I'm reborn. I've still got a lot more to do. And how being liberated, not returning to an earthly body, not returning to material form, entering emptiness permanently, how that is the desirable outcome. And I think that's a very attractive idea, the idea that you come from this perfection. You come from this perfect state called emptiness, and you enter into a body, and you live this life, and you yourself are a mark. You yourself are the destruction of an empty space, and what makes you you is this continual destruction of the other empty spaces as you form this identity with these interests and people tell you how the world works. People tell you how everything is. They, they tell you that this is the system we use to measure everything. And if it doesn't fit with that system, you can forget it. You know, we start t giving you these ideas. Oh, you've got to believe this. You've got to, even though you've had no chance to really experience anything on your own, You've got to believe what I believe, you know, because that's what our, our family does. That's what our household does. That's what your friends do. You've got to think this way. You know, you, you're getting empty spaces are continually being destroyed around you. Meanwhile, you are doing it, too. And you came as the product. You were you were the product of that destruction, too. You you were once part of that emptiness and the 
you know, the destruction of that empty space that you were in created you. And thank God, because I'm glad people are here. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad everybody I know is here. That's a thought I've had the last few months where I'm just, it's like, thank God all of these people made it this far and are still here. They're still hanging with me. I'm still hanging with them. And I don't mean literally hanging out necessarily, but I'll just have some small interaction with a friend. And I just think, man, to be here, to, to think I'm here with, and we're still doing it. And things have changed and everything's changed. But to think that we're still here and we're still doing it. So thank God for creation, you know. Thank emptiness, because emptiness is what sacrifices itself so that you can create, so that you are created. And so, you know, I, I couldn't be happier with the fact that there are things in this world. I don't want to live in an empty room. Not right now, not while I have a body. I'm going to be bored. I'm going to be bored in this room. If you leave me in this room by myself for too long with nothing in it, with just can I, can I at least get a lamp? You know, can I at least get a lamp on the ground? It could be a table lamp with no table, you know. But So we don't want to be in empty rooms because we ourselves are bodies. And things are fun. Things are attractive. Things are interesting. I mean, there's no reason to... You know, because the thing... I feel like, you know, to get into the idea of renunciation again and asceticism, I feel like that's role-playing as emptiness, and I have a lot of val- I have a lot of respect, and I actually value those things a lot. And I've taken a lot of influence from some of those ideas. You know, those ideas. It's not that I've shunned the idea of deprivation, strict discipline. You know, trying to unify as closely as you can with that perfect feeling of emptiness, as close as you can come as a, as somebody in a body who lives at, in during a time in a place. You know, I have a lot of respect for monks and people who devote themselves to that. I really do. And I think another time, another place, I could easily see myself doing that. I could easily see myself living that lifestyle in another time, in another place. But as I said a couple of years ago, I think then it was 2018, but I've been saying it for a while. Any other time period, if I had been born, you know, 20, 30, 40, who knows how many years earlier, I probably would have just become a monk at some point. But I live in this age of you know, ultra-information overload. I live in this age where I have access to so many ideas and so, many, so much different analysis of those ideas. It's not even just that you have access to you know, all these different books, all these different scriptures, all these new modern thinkers, people who just write about any given subject, science, psychology, fiction. There's, we are exposed to so many more ideas, and we have such ready access to all of these different ideas, and even though a lot of them end up being the same, you know, even though a lot of them end up being the same story with different characters, uh, you know, at the same time, we have so much. And so it's difficult for me to devote myself to one particular way of thinking. It's very difficult for me to do that, and that's, I believe that's what a monastic life requires. It's committing it's saying, this is going to be the thing. This is going to be the thing I focus on, and I admire that. Even though it's truly not for me in this lifetime, I do admire people who are able to do that. Because, um, But at the same time, you know, there, there is that irreverent part of me that says, you know, when people become monks or they devote themselves, they, they renounce earthly pleasures. They limit their sensory input to a, you know, almost... Um, you know they just they limit they they limit their own possibilities that's for sure they deliberately limit their possibilities to as few things as possible and yeah that's that is, there's a beauty to that and there's something admirable and there's something that I've learned and I, you know I've probably poorly emulated it but I do take that into my own life as something that I can use for some kind of influence when I need it not how I live my life all the time but you know you can go through phases where you renounce or you cut down on things it's you know you do some kind of you see what it's all about you see how you feel you see what it does to renounce to limit um but uh to get back to um 
I don't know. I, don't, I lost my train of thought going on this tangent about monks. Oh, well, you know, the irreverent part of me. Every time you see, that's another thing that happens. Whenever I'm trying to think about what I was talking about or think about a word, the second I decide that I don't care anymore is when the word comes to you. And so many things work that way. That is the letting go process. I understand this is ridiculous. I understand it's completely ridiculous. But the second that you decide not to brainstorm to try to remember the name of that actor in that movie when you can't even remember the name of the movie but you you have a rule against looking things up on imdb because you enjoy that sudden moment where you remember it organically you know um you know even if uh you know there's that situation it's like the second you let go the second you stop trying to force yourself to remember that name the second you force yourself to stop remembering, there's a word for that, but I don't know what it is. I heard it the other day, but I forgot it. I can't even tell you what it means because it's one of those words that really using it is really the only way to define it. You know, we all have those moments, but it's when we stop trying that the word or thing comes to us, the actor's name. Um, but uh, to what I was actually going to say, what I was trying to remember... You know, I do feel in some ways that irreverent part of me, that part of me who's like, well, the monk's lifestyle isn't for me, so I'm going to say something bad about it, because if it's not for me, I've got to say something bad. You know, that part of me, I I just see monks and I think you're role-playing, you're trying to pretend you're nothing, you're role-players, you're pretending to be something, and of course they are, because we all are, but with monks in particular... You know, it seems like they shouldn't be role playing. It seems like they should actually be that very thing. But I think they they fake it till they make it too. Even enlightened people, to use that word, even to use that word, and you know, this this I, I don't personally use enlightenment. I'm not afraid to. I just it just hasn't felt right. You know, I'm not afraid of God. I'm not afraid of using the word God. I'm not afraid of using the word spirituality. I'm not afraid of the word soul. But I'm not quite there yet with enlightenment, even though I'm comfortable thinking about it. I'm comfortable hearing about it, but I'm just not comfortable commenting on it. You know, because I feel like to talk about enlightenment is to imply that you are enlightened, and and it just doesn't seem like a good route to go down. But maybe there will be a point where I feel as open and free with what that means. Maybe my definition will be less of a definition and I'll just be able to talk about it for the sensation that it no doubt is. And, you know, but I'm also not going to deny the fact that I've had experiences or sensations or have had certain points in my life where I did feel enlightened. You know, I'm not going to deny that either. And maybe that's a good way of approaching the subject. Because I can tell you that despite having epiphanies and sensations over the last number of years, over you know most of my adult life, but the last number of years, um, I can tell you when I was in the hospital, you know, last December when my mom was passing away and just that whole that whole situation, that was the most enlightened I've ever felt. I if, you know I wouldn't have wanted to say it, I wouldn't have verbalized it that way because that would have probably taken me out of that headspace, and it was more than a headspace, it was everything, it was just my entire existence, I wouldn't be able to say any one part of me, you know, was what I'm referring to, it just felt like all of me, and all of every and everything, uh, but it, it, you know, it, in retrospect, I really do feel that that is the closest I've felt to enlightenment, and for good reason, uh, but so I do have a personal experience with sensations that I could call that. But I, you know, so I don't want to say that I'm incapable of achieving enlightenment. I don't want to make this a false, some game of false humility where it's like, if you say you're enlightened, you're not enlightened, which there's some truth to, you know, I'm sure there's some truth to that. Uh, so I don't want to make, but I don't want to make it a game where it's like false humility, where I'm never going to be enlightened because that's just the humble thing to say, or I don't, I haven't had experiences with something that I would call enlightenment, because I believe I have, but I don't rest on those, and I don't think, oh, that was so cool. I don't look back on it like a Hawaii vacation, and look at pictures and say, oh man, uh, you know, remember when we did that? (laughs) Remember when we, uh, remember that beach? You know, it's like, I'm not going to look back at certain experiences the same way I would a vacation. Um... But, you know, I, I can look back at certain experiences I've had and think, you know, I remember it. 
it gave me a certain feeling, but it wasn't something really to look back on and or try to recreate or sustain. But the simplest definition of enlightenment by someone else that made the most sense to me, it might have been Eckhart Tolle or one of those guys, one of those famous uh, New Age thinkers, who, you know, I've listened to, you know, a little bit. You know, I'm definitely not, they weren't part of, you know, those guys weren't a part of my whatever life path I've been on, I wouldn't really cite anybody like that. But I have checked them out before just to see what it's all about. Because, you know, even the most popular figures, even the people who were made famous by Oprah's book club, I mean, you can't ignore those people either. And, you know, if their message impacts a lot of people or, or clicks with people, I mean, sometimes that's worth looking into. You don't have to always be the rebel, of course. But Eckhart Tolle, uh, I think he put it this way, but... Uh, he, he defined enlightenment as a sense of, I, I think he said, a sense of love and astonishment. I, I'm trying to remember if love was actually in there, though. Uh, but definitely a sense of unity. But the point I brought it up is just that he mentioned the word astonishment. And that's what I've felt before. At the times where I've felt most connected with what it means to be alive and also most accepting of whatever it means to be dead, because it turns out that the moments I've had where I feel the most grateful to be alive are also the ones where I feel most at peace with whatever comes. You know, I've heard someone someone describe meditation, reaching a certain state in meditation, and he said, you know, if someone were to put a gun to the back of his head while he's in that state, which he said he can barely get to, rarely get to, but he said if someone were to put a gun to the back of his head in that state, he wouldn't even care. And I think that plays into it, and I think there's a reason why meditation is correlated with enlightenment and that path and that process. But, you know, I can say the same for myself when I have had moments, and, you know, I've gone to some places in meditation, but it's like when you have that feeling, when you have that sensation as you are going about life, going about your business, you just feel that you are flowing, and you don't feel like you are flowing any separately than anything else, and you can, you're acutely aware of the fact that everything is flowing, but there's still something sort of still about it. It's almost like you're like suspended animation, if I'm even using that right. I'd have to look up and see what that actually is, but it comes to mind. There's this feeling of almost suspended. uh, It's almost like a feeling like you're suspended from school. That's what it is. But enough about that. Some exciting talk about what enlightenment is. But yeah, this sense of astonishment, that made a lot of sense to me. I know that I would use the word awe, A-W-E, astonishment and awe. And a general sense of well-being, too. Not necessarily happiness, but definitely a sense of awe. But I think people trip themselves up by thinking enlightenment is something that you have to sustain. You have to keep it going. You have to keep feeding it every day. And you can't possibly dip out of whatever it is enlightenment means to you. You can't possibly lose that sensation. Got to hold on to it like a high. Can't come down from this. And, you know, you can see the error in that way of thinking. In the same way that letting go of trying to remember something is often what brings it to the front of your brain. It's often what allows you to remember it. Is not trying, not getting in the way. You're making effort and you're blocking the signal. Because your brain has something stored in it. And that feeling of, oh, I know it, but I can't quite remember it. That feeling is, is your brain communicating to you that we do have this stored somewhere. We stored this at one point in time. We're having some trouble finding it. You know, it got filed away maybe over here. And when you're forcing yourself to try to remember it, what you're doing is like that, that, you know, that ghostly clerk in your brain who's going through your filing system, who's going through the database. You know, when you're trying too hard to find it, you're basically just getting in their way and you're like, ooh, you know, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to do? I'm looking for something. But you're you're just running into that thing and you're not going to find it through effort. Of course, sometimes you do. Of course, sometimes just you'll think really hard and you do remember something. But it happens to me a lot where the harder I try to remember something, uh, the more that I, it, it feels like I'm jumping in front of that ghost clerk who's, he knows the whole system and he's going to send me the right, he's eventually going to find that lost note card 
that got that has some actor's name that was in a movie I saw once. You know, he has that, and he's going to send that signal to me, but I've just got to stand in front of the signal. I've got to do this dance. I've got to rack my brain. I've got to rack my brain. You know, the human brain is, is a, a bunch of racks, and there's a ghost clerk, and then he sends you a signal <laughs> with the data. Um, but uh, that, that is what happens when you are forcing something. It's not just trying to remember something. It also happens when you try to force something, and easier said than done. You know, it's much easier said than done, but uh, which is why I'm saying it. <laughs> I wouldn't be saying it if I was just doing it all the time. You know, I wouldn't be saying it because it is easier said than done, but it is true where when you try to force that thing, it could be any situation, forcing a person to do what you want. You know, you send some kind of weird signal or block some kind of signal. It's when you go against your intuition, when you go against the grain. And and the problem is sometimes you need to. Um, but uh, getting in the way of that ghost clerk, that ghost Lee. I don't even like calling him a ghost clerk. I like ghost Lee. You're not really sure if he's a ghost. It's like something out of Ghostbusters. A ghost who just works at the library. isn't That's probably a thing in one of the Ghostbusters movies, right? They have ghosts doing practical jobs. These ghosts just want to do their jobs again. They're, they're, they were reborn as ghosts, and they got to walk the earth, and they just want to do their jobs again. These ghosts here, they just want to work. Put them to work. Um, project money into their hand. They don't even need cold, hard cash. Just uh, get a projector. Put some money on it, and it'll transport it right into their hand. It's like a direct deposit. Stupid. Really stupid. Getting really stupid here, so I'm probably going to wind down. We've already hit the subject of enlightenment. But yeah, I mean, it is true, though, if you go around. I feel like if you are seeking enlightenment, it's the same thing as forcing something. If you're trying to force enlightenment or preserve enlightenment, sustain it. And of course, you should do the things that produce enlightenment if that is what feels right that if you do want some kind of liberation because it's not even about whether your soul gets liberated you know it's not even about if you find enlightenment and you do a quote-unquote achieve liberation opposed to rebirth you know it's not even about that where it's sort of like the idea of heaven and you know a christian life where the process itself should be good enough on its own regardless of the outcome the process itself should be good enough just, you know, simply living that life, striving for enlightenment without forcing it, but living a life that cultivates that way of thinking or that sense of being. You know, living that life should be enough of on its own, whether you actually achieve enlightenment or achieve liberation, whether your soul is actually liberated, whether that's actually what happens whether that's actually a real thing that happens. It seems like a liberation actually occurs much earlier when you're still in your human body, when you commit yourself to a certain discipline, when you find out what works for you, not what somebody told you you need to do to achieve enlightenment, but when you find something that actually gets you something that you could feel comfortable calling enlightenment, which is all it comes down to with my own personal experience. I would never try to tell somebody I'm enlightened or I was enlightened. I would never try to say that. I feel ridiculous even thinking it, honestly. I feel ridiculous. But you can live a life where... You know, maybe you achieve something, maybe you liberate yourself in some way. Maybe you might not liberate your soul. It might not even be that. But if you yourself in your human life feel some liberation as a result of the lifestyle you are living, that seems like a pretty good deal even if you don't get anything else out of it. That sounds like a wonderful deal to me, and I think the same applies to a Christian life where to focus on heaven really isn't what a Christian does. You know, what a true Christian does, and I'm not a Christian, so I'm not out to say that I'm a true Christian, or anybody really is, but what I can tell you about my take on the Christian mystical experience is, is that the process alone is enough of a reward to where even if you don't get into heaven, or heaven isn't there, heaven exists, but you can't find it. 
You know, even if that's not part of this, even if there is no going to heaven, to me, living a true Christian life, and I don't mean following every, like, you know, everything Leviticus tells you, I'm not saying that. This is where people get caught up in, you know, you you can't be this, or you can't be that, or you gotta hate this, and you end up, you know, protesting same-sex marriage or bathrooms, or, you know, you get caught up in that, and you think that's what being a Christian is. Uh, but there is something about the basic teachings of Christianity. What is tra- you know what is communicated through the parables? What is communicated about God and the human being's relationship to God? What comes through in that is the process is valuable enough if you more or less commit to that. Just like committing to the life that will bring you some enlightened state. Whether that enlightened state comes, it's like that process is enough. And I know that I've said that enough, so I won't say it again. But do you really need the ultimate reward when, you know, the path that you're told will get there is a good enough reward? And if more comes from that, well, wow, you you got a lot to look forward to. Um, You know, I think it goes, too, for people, and this is something I can work on, and I I hope that I will continue to improve in this department, but generosity and and lending a helping hand. Not just waiting, not always waiting. You know, when someone asks me for a helping hand, I do my best to make myself available. But I do feel like I could take more initiative, for sure, and this isn't some confession. This isn't some, uh, you know diary about what I want to do to improve myself. But still, I mean, that's something that I'm very aware of. But I'm using it as an example where somebody who is very generous and is very kind-hearted and who does lend a helping hand and takes initiative to do that without being annoying or forcing things on people, someone who really lives that way, I think they achieve some form of liberation in doing that. I think that the process itself is actually enough of a reward regardless of yeah, people are going to say, that person was really nice. Oh, that that person was amazing. Oh, let's give them a civic award for all the help that they gave people, for all they've done. You know, that stuff isn't really the reward. The reward is the process. And uh, if more comes from it, more comes from it. But, you know, the process itself, and I've, like I said, I've said that enough. I've said that enough. Um. Something I wonder about, though, I, just my final thought of the night is, you know, I've been talking about this example of we come from c- perfection, we come from emptiness, we enter into a body and we live these lives that are inevitably imperfect. In the same way I talked about how a drawing, doesn't matter how, doesn't matter what kind of state of mind you're in, whether you make all the right lines, you know, everything about it is exactly what you wanted. There's still something imperfect about it. And you see it as the creator of it. You will see the imperfections, even in something that is near perfect. You know, you're very rarely going to feel that something you create is perfect. And it's the same for living your life. You know, you're born into a body and you're never going to achieve perfection. It's always going to be that most distant shore that you won't reach. You know, you're always going to have examples of figures who are far more perfect. Heroes and stories, martyrs. You know, every story has a hero who is almost perfect. Not every story, but I mean, many classic stories. You know, we create gods. We create warrior gods who embody some form of perfection. But we ourselves can't reach that. And the things that we do can't be that. No matter how good we are. No matter how precise we are. It's just something that we just can't seem to reach. But we come from perfection, this emptiness, this perfection. We enter into this state where... Perfection just isn't possible, and a lot of our life is coming to terms with that. And then you re-enter perfection. And in the moments where life does feel somewhat perfect, where maybe you do feel like you're in some sort of heightened state, it's interesting how you don't mind the idea of re-entering perfection. It's almost like, oh, I'm on that frequency right now, which is why you know someone who's in a deep state of meditation doesn't even worry about an imminent threat. You know, or at least they can use that as an example of something that, you know, that explains the state they are in. They are in that frequency where even death isn't scary. And someone can feel that way when they're just in an enlightened or heightened state as they go about their day on a given day. You know, it could just be a moment. It could be one second where you feel that for just a second. 
And sometimes those are the best of all. You know, sometimes that's better than, you know, sometimes when you feel like you're in a heightened state for just like 10 seconds and you notice it, sometimes that's even better than feeling that way for a whole day. Um, you know, sometimes that's even more valuable. You don't take it for granted and, and you, you just feel this jolt in you. But, you know, so your life isn't going to be perfect and you, you, leave in this state of perfection too. You re-enter that emptiness. You become one with that emptiness again, and you re-enter that state of perfection. And I wonder, you know, something I was thinking about earlier, I was thinking about naivety, if I'm saying that right. Naivety? I think that's right. Naive? To be naive. You know, thinking about to be what it is to be naive. And we think of children as naive. And they've just exited that emptiness. They've just exited that perfection. That empty space was destroyed and has created this kid. And this kid is coming from a place of perfection, and the kid is naive. You know, it, it doesn't know what to believe. It came from a place of total possibility, and it's entered reality, this child. And so everything seems so possible that they will believe almost anything. And people are molding them, and for good reason, because they want to keep them alive. you got to teach a kid things. you got to show a kid things to keep them alive. But a kid becomes ne- less naive through that process. You know, childhood is a process of becoming less naive and losing your innocence is the way people often put it. And sometimes that's through a traumatic event, but it eventually just happens gradually. You know, eventually a child will just lose, you know, people remain innocent. I do. I feel like there is this innocence that carries us throughout our lives, and everybody is naive in some way. You know, it's not that we ever escape that. We never escape, you know, innocence. But we do lose a childhood innocence. There is a change that happens in most people, and, you know, it relates to the loss of innocence. And as you get older, you, you become more wise, not necessarily cynical. It's not like you have to go from being naive to being cynical, although many of us do. You know, many people do suddenly become, oh, I'm not naive anymore, so I'm going to be cynical, you know, but uh, you become less naive, and by the time you're an adult, you're not considered naive, and part of that is, you know, we can see it in our legal system. You're 18, and uh, we call that jail age. Oh, you're, you're jail age, boy. You know, now you can go to jail and do real time because we don't think you're naive anymore. We think you know what you're doing. We think you know enough. You've lost enough innocence to where if you do something wrong, we're not going to consider you innocent and you're going to jail. You know, that's kind of how we see people once they become an adult. We think, okay, they're no longer innocent. They should know better. They're not naive. They knew what they were doing. And if they don't by now, this will teach them. Maybe some jail will teach them. So you can see where there's this process of losing your naivety, no longer being naive. But what I was wondering earlier is, can you become naive again? Maybe not truly naive, but I think this is where that enlightenment comes in, and this idea of the astonishment and awe that are associated with enlightenment. Whoever said it, whether it was Eckhart Tolle, one of those guys, uh, you know, saying that there is a sense of awe and astonishment that goes along. No, what it was, I I remember the exact quote now. It was, what enlightenment is, is paying attention and being astonished. There was no, nothing about love. There was nothing about unity. It was simply paying attention and being astonished. So that was it. I'm glad I actually remembered it. See, earlier, it's another example. I was trying to remember it earlier. I was trying to force myself to remember this quote that I heard once, and I waited much later, and I, was, I didn't care whether I knew it anymore, and it came to me. So here we go. It's, it's science, folks. It's how it works. You let go, and it comes to you. Um, you got a boomerang in your brain, folks. Because that's the signal that the ghostly clerk sends to you. The ghostly clerk sends you the information with a boomerang. And it comes back to him. Because he's got to use it again to send you more information from your archive, your personal archive of thought. But uh, so, um, whatever, and then now we got to remember what I was talking about. But um, yeah, be paying attention and being astonished. Paying attention and being astonished. Whether that's enlightenment or not doesn't matter. I think that's a valuable state of being when you're noticing things and remaining astonished. So in that way, I think that form of enlightenment 
that definition of enlightenment is completely in line with the idea of becoming naive again. Because we're all going to lose that, hopefully. You know, I think that a healthy person is going to lose some of that childhood innocence. I think they are going to enter into a different phase of their life, hopefully. And in doing that, though, it's like they... It's not necessarily a desirable, a desirable state where you want to remain. You don't want to become cynical. You don't want to become convinced. You don't want to think that you know everything. You don't want to limit the number of possibilities available to you. You don't want to act like you've seen it all before. Because even if you have, why can't you appreciate it again? You know, and if it's not something you want to see again, then you have plenty of other options, plenty of other possibilities. So that idea of paying attention and, and being astonished, to me, that is becoming naive again. You know, realizing you really don't know anything and reopening yourself to experience. You know, I'm going to notice things and operate in a general state of awe and hopefully not be annoying about it. Hopefully not annoy other people with my general astonishment for the phenomenon that is this whole thing. Something shifted my perspective. I was able to see life a little bit differently. And that small change in perspective revealed so much that I hadn't seen before. Why would I not be in awe? Why would I not be astonished? And that's not an ego thing, believe it or not, you know. It becomes an ego thing when you start saying, well, when I achieved enlightenment in 1977, uh, you know, it's not an ego thing, though, to be in awe and astonished. And not to do that just to facilitate, to bring on enlightenment, but to do that for its own sake and finding that value, becoming naive again. You come from this naive state, you lose it to some degree. You, do, you might become jaded, you might become cynical. At the very least, you might become secure in your own reality and think you know exactly what reality is, how things operate, how things work, who you are. You think you, you, think you know who you are, because that's a big part of it, too. You become convinced, I am this person and I am this way. And then in becoming naive again, you realize that I'm kind of astonished that I'm even what I am, and not the things that I thought I was or whatever else it is. You kind of become, you're part of the general astonishment that you have for everything, and of course you are. I think you have to be astonished by your own existence first and foremost before you can be astonished by everything. It just seems, it seems necessary. It's almost like what pe when people say you need to love yourself before you can love anybody else, which is very true. I think that's very true. And not, you know, not always. I mean, I don't think all, any of these are absolute. Yeah, people who really don't love themselves do love other people. But there is something to where the optimum amount of love comes from first loving yourself. Because you can provide more love. You can provide, you can help people more. You can do more for people when you love yourself. So it's the same thing where you must be astonished. And what, what is, you know, I mean, you can even relate these things where it's like, what's more astonishing than love? When you get away from the aesthetic of it, when you get away from Valentine's Day greeting cards and the way that we've, you know, put these shapes and these ideas around what love is, the way that we've boxed love in, not that we've boxed it in in some horrible way, but just the fact that we have defined love a certain way, we have certain imagery we associate with love, but when you get past that, you know, love is truly astonishing. The fact that we love each other at all, but just to feel love is an astonishing feeling. So, of course, loving yourself is being astonished by yourself. And when you love and feel astonishment about your own existence, you feel that way about everything. You'll see it even in the, the classic. It's like a cartoon comic panel of somebody who has a new love, somebody who's fallen in love, and they're walking around Paris, and they're being nice to everybody. They're tipping. Oh, he must be in love. Look at how happy he is. It's a stereotype of the new lovers. They're nice to everybody. But it's like when you have that sensation coming from within, you have a much stronger desire to be that person who does nice things and is generally kind. You are those two lovers. You are them. Because they feel connected to everybody, too. That's what does it. That's the interesting thing about those sensations. 
uh, but you have to be careful when you're deriving them from another person. Not that there's anything wrong with love, not that there's anything wrong with uh, toting around Paris, loving everything, you know, but it is generally better if you are producing that from the inside as well as getting it from the outside. Um, so it's, it's all about that, folks. You know, it's, it, it is. I would, see, I would love if I found something else. That's what I wanted. You know, when I was just really uh, on fire trying to carve out some kind of niche for what I thought I wanted to be in this world, you know, I was looking for a new thing or a, or a new word for an old thing, something that I could call my own. I didn't want to talk about love. I didn't want to talk about, you know, many of these things. But the way things worked out, you know, you realize that, oh, that's there. I'm not going to reinvent this. It seems like all things end up leading back to this. It seems like a lot of ideas parallel each other, spanning just unreal amounts of time. Seems like everybody ends up coming to a similar conclusion. And, you know, who am I to describe it in completely new terms. How would I even come up with them? Nobody would even know what I was saying. I wouldn't even know what I was saying. So it's all, you know, part of it. But what I kept coming back to earlier was, you know, enjoying the process itself and not necessarily looking for the outcome. And, you know, I'm reading the Bhagavad Gita and it talks about that, where it's like, you know, doing work not because of what you desire not because of what you may be rewarded with, but investing yourself in that process alone, investing yourself in the process for its own sake. And it could be the Christian life. As the Leuven brothers sang, I like the Christian life. They didn't say, I love the Christian life. They said, I like the Christian life. And they sang its praises. And that's what it should be for you if that's your choice. If you think that's your path, it should be, I like the Christian life. No matter what comes of this, I like the life that this gives me. I like the guidelines that this give me to work from, you know? I, that's, that's how you should see it, and I like what I can do with this. You know, if you've devoted yourself to a monastery, you know, it should be for the same reasons. It should be, you know, I actually, this is, this is I like this life. You know, I actually like this life. You know, it, this seems to produce something. The, seem, the, the process that is my life seems to benefit in some way from me making the decision to live this way. And that should be enough, but it, you shouldn't deny a potential outcome either. If an outcome comes, it comes. You know, because it turns out it's really not up to you whether that comes or not. Otherwise, you'd probably grab it first thing. You'd probably try to steal it. You know, <laughs> in your most desperate moment, you'd probably try to steal that outcome before you did any work at all. You mean I can get to heaven first thing? You know, I'll, all I have to do is sneak up there? You're telling me all I got to do is, is put a ladder against that wall there and I can climb up over the wall of heaven? I don't even got to live any kind of life anyway. I don't even have to take anything into consideration. Oh, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm going to sneak in. Oh, you're telling me that my soul can achieve liberation and I don't even, I don't have to do anything? Give me that right now. I'm going to buy that right now. I'm going to buy soul liberation. In case they kick me out of heaven, I'm going to buy soul liberation. And, you know, just in case, as, as a backup plan. You know, we'd do that if we could. We'd buy that thing if we could, and we certainly try. We'd buy that thing, we'd steal it, we'd find a way to get it early. We'd take a sneak peek at our Christmas presents if we could. We'd take a sneak peek into heaven before we actually got there, if we could. So the outcome really isn't even up to you because, you know, you couldn't even trust yourself with it if you had it. <laughs> you know, you couldn't even trust yourself with it if you knew the reward was within reach you couldn't even trust yourself with it. But the reward that is within reach is uh, committing yourself in a certain way to a certain way of thinking. And the more open that way of thinking is, the better. So if I commit myself to a certain way of thinking, how does that open things up? It just does. It just seems to, it just seems to do it. I wouldn't be able to break it down. I wouldn't be able to explain it. 
You know, it's the development of discipline. You know, if you have a discipline, if you schedule your activities out, if you have certain disciplines that you practice, be they fitness, you know, be they meditation, study, you know, when you have those, when you have that structure in your life, you would think that that takes away possibility. You would think that you would have less time, but you'll find that your time is more meaningful. And if it's more meaningful, there's an abundance to that. Meaning creates abundance. So your time becomes more valuable, you know, and then when you do have free time, you know, when you do have time where you just lounge about doing nothing, that becomes more valuable too. It adds value even to that by a lot. It adds a lot of value to that. And you feel less guilt, no guilt. So, you know, having discipline, committing your your mind to a certain way of thinking, it does open up the realm of possibilities. It adds meaning. It adds value. And people will attest to that. And I feel like I've only gotten a glimpse. You know, I feel like I've only gotten a glimpse of this. But you should be willing to appreciate the process for itself. You know, you should work out for its own sake, for the benefits of working out, not so that you can indulge later, not so that you can overeat, not so you can get 12 donuts later. You know, you run the marathon for the marathon's sake. I've never done that. I've never run a marathon, but run the marathon for the marathon's sake, not for the 12 donuts you can eat. And if you want to eat the donuts, eat them. But there's something about taking the process for what it is and realizing the value and meaning that it offers you. And uh, consider that while you won't reach perfection, you came from perfection. You came from an empty state of perfection. You entered into an imperfect world where you can get glimpses of perfection and understand that it actually isn't an imperfect world, but you're always going to feel somehow imperfect. Or more often than not, you're going to spend a significant amount of time somehow feeling that, contending with that. You know, experiencing your smallness, the full weight of being small. You're going to experience that. And so you exist in this imperfect state, but then you know that you will eventually return to imperfect, or you will return to perfection one way or another. Just like you can return to that naive state. You can start naive. You can lose it, you can become as cynical as you want, but you know that you can become naive again, but you have to be committed. Committing yourself somehow is what brings that, it, it, somehow that's what makes that come to be. You become naive through some form of commitment, which seems strange, because you'd think being naive just means nothing's there, but you can achieve that. You can become innocent again, you can become naive again. You can get glimpses of the perfection that is life, even though it isn't emptiness, which is true perfection. You can get glimpses, and if what you're doing is giving you glimpses of that, that seems worth it unto itself. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take.